Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, January 23rd, 2022, and this is show number 872. Well, this week we have not one, but two chit-chats across the pond. In chit-chat across the pond number 712, our guest is the wizard Alec Johnson. Alec is the host of the YouTube channel called Take One Tech. He creates these amazing how-to guides on tools like Stream Deck and Hazel and Keyboard Maestro, Ecamm Live, and a lot of the basic features of the Mac operating systems as well. When I first found his video tutorials, I started devouring them because I was just learning so much. I asked Alec if he'd come on the show to talk about how he creates these amazing tutorials because they're unique in the style and the quality of the content. We talk about the gear he uses and most importantly, his software setup that allows him to create 30-minute video tutorials, get this, in one take. Every one of his videos is in one take. And they're not long, rambling, messy things. They're tight. They're really, really tight and crisp and get right to the point. So um, even after learning how he automates with Keyboard Maestro and Stream, and Stream Deck, I still, I still think he's a wizard because he can create such smooth video tutorials with relatively few mistakes all in one take. Get this, in one take, he has created 100 videos in 100 days, and his next goal is 365 videos in 365 days. This is why I introduced him as the wizard Alec Johnson. Now, since he's a video guy, we decided to have him record the interview that we did for his YouTube channel as well. So if you'd rather watch instead of listen to it, you can do that. There's a few times in the conversation where he demonstrates a little bit of what he's describing, so there might be a small advantage to watching the video. As always, though, I made sure to keep adding color commentary to what I was watching so you won't miss anything in the audio. And of course, there's a link in the show notes to his YouTube channel and this interview in particular. Now, he described his physical setup during the interview, and it was still a little bit confusing, as even as he was showing it in the video, so I asked him to send a photo of it, which is also included below the video. Now, of course, you can get this interview on Chit Chat Across the Pond in your favorite podcatcher of choice. And in Chit Chat Across the Pond number 713, Bart Bouchatz is back with Programming by Stealth, installment 134 of X. In this installment, he finishes firming, firming up our foundation on a few more things before we meet Jest, which will be the test-driven development environment that we're going to be learning next time. He explains in some adorable examples involving a parrot, named Polly of course, how getters can be used to construct short but powerful syntaxes that seem kind of counterintuitive at first glance. These are heavily used by Jest, and without learning about them beforehand, we would, they would simply look like magic when we get there. He said some purists may see this syntax as an abuse of getters, but it's a pretty slick method that yields some very readable APIs. The second thing he teaches about us about is that functions can actually return functions. Now, that sounds like it's going to open a hole in the space-time continuum, but it's actually quite logical and useful, as Bart explains the usefulness of this really well in this episode. No parrots are involved, but we get lots of pancakes and waffles and maybe a little bit of popcorn and some tacos in his example. You can find Bart's fabulous tutorial show notes for this episode at pbs.bartifesser.net. And of course, you can find this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond in your podcatcher of choice under Programming by Stealth or the overarching Chit Chat Across the Pond. I wanted to do a really quick update on my article about using regular expressions to help stimulate your brain when playing Wordle. Yeah, as you can imagine, I got the expected, you're cheating messages. Uh, but I also like Bart's explanation. He said, it's not cheating, it's a different game. 
Anyway, when I talked about Klaus's solution with his Python script, I mentioned that he told me there was a common word list in the GitHub repository, and we could use that for our regular expression to search instead of all English words. It turns out this list is not useful in that way, because it's a list of words that are too common for the developer to use in the game. If you use these words, we'd guess it too easily, so don't follow my advice from last week. Speaking of Python, Dave Hamilton of the Mac Geek Gab podcast bragged that his son Lucas had written a solver for Wordle in Python as well. It was in a private repo on GitHub, so I asked for permission to see it. I bring this up not to talk more about Wordle or even to talk about his solution method. I bring it up because of how it made me feel to try to use his solution. In my programming journey, I'm often frustrated and I feel as though I'm just super dumb and I'm never going to catch on. I mean, people see mistakes in my code that I'm like, how did I not even know that? I mean, it just, I don't know, it gets very discouraging sometimes. Bart and all the other people in our PBS Slack channel are very quick to tell me that I'm wrong to think that way and that everyone feels that way from time to time. But when I tried to use Lucas's Python script, I felt positively powerful. You see, I don't know Python at all, but I still figured out how to use it. From Programming by Stealth, I've learned a lot of little pieces of information that are successfully stuffed back in the dusty shelves of my brain and able to be retrieved right when I need them. We've learned how to put our code into GitHub. This is a place where you can share your code with others, so once I had permission, I knew how to clone his repository down to my computer, which gave me a perfect copy of his code. I knew that to run a script, you type dat dot slash, and then you add the name of the script. I tried that, and it didn't work. Then I remembered Bart saying, you have to change the permissions on scripts to make them executable. So you write chmod755 in the name of the script. That started the script up, so I was off to the races. But the script didn't work properly the first time. I knew how to open an issue with a developer, in this case Lucas, on GitHub. Lucas asked me what version of Python I was running. Hmm, let's see, how do I get that? I seem to remember something like putting the application name followed by dash dash version. That would answer the question. Sure enough, it found that I was running an old and busted version 2.7.18 of Python. Now, Apple ships Macs with programming languages like Python, but makes no effort whatsoever to keep them up to date. Their solution is that they're going to stop shipping the languages at all, and I wish they'd get on with that. Anyway, Lucas suggested I upgrade to Python 3. Okay, where do you get a programming language? Well, Bart taught us about a tool called Homebrew, where you can get all kinds of nifty command line open source tools. On a lark, I typed into the terminal brew space install space Python. In a few seconds, I had Python 3.9.10. Boom! Again, felt powerful. I even figured out that this method, while downloading the new version of Python, did not get rid of the old version of Python. So I had to call it by the name Python 3 instead of Python, and that would point me to the correct version. After that, a bug that and, and a bug that Lucas had squashed, I was able to run his cool Python script to solve the Wordle puzzle. In the few times I've actually played Wordle, it's taken me three to four tries to win. With the help of Lucas's script, it still took me three tries. I went back to GitHub, I let Lucas know that his script was working, and then I closed the issue. Now, while playing the game of Wordle is great fun, learning to program has been even more fun. I was amazed at how much I had absorbed from programming by stealth and how comfortable I was with all these different tools. 
When I was a little girl, my mother said that if we asked my dad what time it was, he'd explain how to build a clock. She tried to convince him that we couldn't possibly understand all of what he was trying to explain to us. But my dad had a great answer. He said he thought of us as trying to pour wine into a wine bottle. Sure, a lot of it would spill on the outside, but some of it would get in. Well, Bart has been pouring a lot of wine over the last 134 plus, or 130 plus lessons, and a lot more of it has gotten in than I ever realized. Now, shortly after I finished writing this up, Michael Westbay posted a wonderful story about programming by stealth in our Slack group that he gave me permission to share. Here's his story. Our son interviewed at an independent gaming company a few days ago. They asked him if he knew Git, to which he replied, yes. Later in the interview, they mentioned that he'd have to issue pull requests on his work. He knew about push and pull, but this was the first time he'd heard the term pull request. I told him about programming by stealth and that there were about 10 episodes of Git, and one of them focused on pull requests in particular. I gave him the gist of it. You have to fork the project on GitHub, check it out on your workstation, make a branch, make the modifications, commit those, push them back to, to GitHub, then issue the pull request from the original repo. This was a little too much for him to handle all at once, so I sent him to the uh, Programming by Stealth 119 and suggested we go through the process on one of my repositories for practice. He put it off for a couple of days, then last night he came to me and said he finally got it. He said that listening to the accompanying podcast was the most helpful because, quote, the dumb one asking the questions asked all the right questions. Now, Michael goes on to say, no offense intended on his part. I told him about the tagline, I'm the stooge who asks all the dumb questions, but I don't think he was familiar with the word stooge, so that was his attempt at quoting it. Personally, I find the show notes to be extremely helpful for looking things up quickly, but I've already heard the podcast. Our son doesn't like reading English stories, and, that, and that's how much of the notes are presented as a short story using an aspect of tech to solve a problem. It's not a transcript of the show. Instead, the audio podcast is an extension of the story with an additional character helping to make things more clear. Now, I don't think I've convinced him to become a new subscriber, but he does appreciate the stooge in the front row asking the dumb questions. Thank you, Podfeet, for asking them and helping tech be more accessible. Well, you got to know that I love this story so much because on the one hand, you know, it shows how Bart's reach is helping so many people, but I also love it because it supports what Bart's always telling me. He tells me that playing that stooge who keeps asking questions from the front row of the class is actually valuable to other people. And now we can prove he's right. I am grinning from ear to ear. Thank you, Michael, for sharing that story. Last week, I gave you an update on the third set of original AirPods I had and how Apple made me go through a lot of hoops to replace the one that I had lost. I explained that as Apple tossed me from rep to rep like a beach ball at a baseball game, the sales rep told me in no uncertain terms that she simply could not sell me an AirPod and that I had to go through AppleCare to get a replacement. I asked her if she was saying that without AppleCare, someone could not buy one if they lost it, and she said yes. I even asked her if she thought that was kind of nutty, and she said, yes, I hear it. Well, this week, I got not one, but two emails from listeners who had something very interesting to say. They have recorded it in their own words. First, we're going to hear from Gordon. Hello, everyone. Apple likes me better than Allison. Actually, I'm not sure if that's really true. Maybe I was just lucky. Last week, 
Allison shared with us her tale of woe and horror as she tried to replace her lost AirPod. I listened to a story with interest and said, Huh, I'll never have to worry about that. That's something that only happens to other people. I bought my first pair of AirPods, the third generation, in October of 2021. I've really enjoyed them and use them every day, but today, my right AirPod decided to run away. I did my best to find it, but the AirPod was determined not to be found. And after listening to your last show, Allison, show number 871, I was petrified that getting a replacement would be fraught with aggravations and dangers. First, I went to the Apple support page and tried to order a replacement through there. They had a nice handy form that would make it easy. But every time I hit submit, I got, oops, something went wrong. I tried it on different browsers, different devices. And no matter how many times I tried, I kept getting the same error. Your words from your last podcast really began to haunt me as I did not have Apple Care, and figured this error was Apple's clever way of saying, I am out of luck. Well, with nothing to lose, I started a chat session with Apple. From there, everything was smooth sailing. In about five minutes, I was able to successfully order a replacement AirPod, and the only question the chat representative asked me if I had used the Find My App to locate them. I would like to say Apple likes me better than you, Allison, but I know that's not true. It is strange, though, for something as straightforward as ordering a replacement AirPod that our experiences were so vastly different. Thank you, and I hope your next experience is as smooth as mine. Well, Gordon, thanks for sending this, but I I can't believe it. Why was it so easy for Gordon and Apple told me, It was impossible. They could not do it. All right, now let's hear the second message that's from Barry. Apple likes me better. Hey, everybody, this is Barry from Chicago, and I just thought I'd share a story about replacing my AirPod that I lost. The reason that I needed to replace one was not very pleasant. I was actually flying home to Chicago and watching a movie on my iPad. Nature called. I went to the bathroom. And it really felt like my left AirPod just jumped right out of my ear, swish right into the airplane toilet. Now, if you've ever had the unfortunate circumstance to look into one of those things, they're not pleasant. And there was no way I was going to go try to reach in there and try to retrieve it. And even if I could, I'm not going to stick that in my ear. So at that point, all I could really do was laugh and figure out I need a replacement. So I went back let the flight attendants know what happened so that they could, if there was anything mechanical they needed to do, um, that they would know that fell in. And I told them I did not need a replacement under no circumstances. Do it. I want, did I want that back? And they'd laughed and they said, great, no problem. Um, so I go back to my iPad and I did a quick search. I had Wi-Fi going. So I had a, did a quick search for replacement Apple AirPod and sure enough, it actually brought me to a page. So Hearing on NoSilicast 871 that you needed um, Apple Care, I was kind of surprised, so I thought I'd share this, that there is a page that you can go to, and it will show the devices that you've purchased under your ID that you've logged in. However, in this case, if, if they were a gift or you're logged in under a different ID or you have multiple IDs, you may not see it. You do have the option 
of entering in the serial number of the AirPods, and it did show up right away. Once I did that, it brought me to a page to replace, repair, or other options for the AirPod. And I simply selected replace, selected the right, the correct one, which is left in this case. And they sent me a notification right away saying, you'll get a notification when it's shipped. It should be there in about three to five days. And sure enough, got all the email updates saying the AirPod is on its way. It arrived in a nice little box, uh, followed the instructions on how to properly pair the new left one with the old right one. And it works great. So I just thought I'd share that information with everybody. It was really nice and easy. And I will share a link in the show notes. Well, this is fantastic news that the sales rep was completely wrong. And I'm so glad that both Gordon and Barry let us know that she was wrong. I'd really hate to have everyone think I was right when I said you had to have AppleCare to replace a lost AirPod. I did try the online method that both Gordon and Barry tried, and I had the same failure that Gordon had, but then later I had a different problem, and I, know, I remember now why it failed for me. If you go through the online method, they ask you for the serial number of your device, as Barry explained. I don't see why they need our serial number in order to buy an AirPod, though. What if I want to put it in a planter of dirt as part of an art exhibit? Why should they care? It doesn't matter, matter whether this makes sense at all, though, because you cannot go on to the next step without answering that question. As I was faced with this request for unnecessary information, I wasn't worried about having to read the microprint inside my AirPods case. That's because I am meticulous about recording my serial numbers, and I do this in the fabulous home inventory app called Under My Roof. I open Under My Roof, I search for my AirPods, I found the serial number, and I entered it into Apple's service site. Unfortunately, I got an error saying that they'd already been replaced. I was confused, and that was why I procrastinated and eventually ended up on the phone with Apple. When I was telling you the story the last time, I had this niggling feeling that I was already on my third set of original AirPods, but I couldn't remember how there was a second pair in the plot. When Gordon and Barry mentioned doing it online, I remembered that I actually had this entire set replaced under AppleCare because they failed shortly after I bought them. I bought them and they like immediately failed, like within weeks. They were exhibiting the same annoying behavior of being in the charging case and actually discharging while in the case. That, that's important to know what's going wrong here is I take a, an AirPod out of my ear that it says is like 70%, 80% charged. I put it in a fully charged case and the next day it's down to 1%. So they're, they're actually losing charge, which doesn't make any sense. So it turns out, though, because I had already had it replaced, I was not as meticulous as I thought I was, because when I got my new set of AirPods, which are now my third set, I forgot to update under my roof with the new serial number. That has now been corrected. Now, none of this justifies the person, the salesperson telling me that I couldn't buy a single AirPod, but it does explain another reason why I'm so irritated with this problem. I'm on case number two, right AirPod number two, and left AirPod number three. Remember, at the end of my story last time, I told you that if these AirPods fail, you'll hear my wail of anguish wherever you live? Well, did you hear me? Yep, second day after I got my replacement AirPod, it said I had a 2% battery life left on it after spending the entire day in the charging case. I think I'm going to just have to have Gordon call Apple for me. Are you ever listening to the NoSilicast or Chit Chat Across the Pond Light or Programming by Stealth and thinking, Wow, I sure get a lot out of this content. I really want to help contribute to the show to demonstrate the value I get. But somehow, you forget to do it later when you're back in front of your computer. 
I know, it happens to the best of us. In fact, it happened to good friend of the show, Ed Tobias. He thought he already was a patron, but it turned out he wasn't. Luckily, he realized this oversight and he went to podfeed.com slash Patreon and he signed up to pledge an amount he felt was appropriate for the value he gets out of the show. If you've had this kind of oversight yourself, remember, it's never too late. Thanks, Ed, for your support of the Podfeet Podcasts. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. Is it a big week, a little week, a medium week, Bart? What do we got today? Uh, there's two deep dives, so how would you rank that? That's pretty deep. We haven't it's had deep, deep in a while. Deep. Yeah. They're, they're shallow deep dives, if that helps, but they are, they are, they're worthy, they're worthy of, of giving a little bit of that, you know, that little extra, extra discussion. All right, um, sounds good. We have some follow-up on stories we've looked at before. Um, so a while ago, I tried to find the exact date, but it was not the last show or the show before, which means it must have been at least six weeks ago. But we have definitely talked about the fact that there are a bunch of US states who are following Texas's lead in an antitrust case against Google. And we have known that an issue has been how Google runs ad auctions. And we've mm-hmm. known that the allegation was that they were playing both sides. But we now have basically one of the court filings got unredacted. So we can now put an exclamation point on quite how messed up it is. So it's an auction that Google run and Google make money from, and Google represent the buyers and the sellers. So Google <laughs> is acting on behalf of literally everyone in the auction and using it as a profit center for themselves. Okay. It is messed up like you wouldn't believe. So details in the Wired article. Hmm. Um, we talked last time about the HomeKit bug, where if you name your HomeKit device something with like 90,000 letters, it breaks iPhones. <laughs> well, Apple patched that a few days after we recorded. So iOS 15.2.1 fixed some bugs, but it also fixed that vulnerability. So that's, You know, that's in programming cool. by stealth, I'm always telling you that I am unable to be a imaginative to think of what stupid things people would possibly enter into a, a field in my program. And it's like, I, you just picture Apple going, oh, come on, really? Why would you do that? <laughs> Fine. I, honestly, the only thing you can do is be defensive and don't, don't deny list, allow list. I demand X and check for X and settle for nothing else. Okay, okay. But well, but you're still nice. You're like, okay, if you wrote the word seven, when I told you to write the number seven, I'll still let that because I know how to convert it for you. You're, you're too nice. Well, that's true. So I will coerce the data, but at the end of my coercion, I will do a rigorous check, right? So if the coercion fails... That's the name for basically massaging the value into something you need. But the very, very last if statement, for want of a better term, is going to be a final check for the absolute assertion that you meet my specific requirements. I may have helped you get there, but that piece of data is going to be right. And that's the only way. And that's a wonderful aspiration. And uh, I'm a human being. I promise you, you can find functions I have written that do not properly validate their data. I, I know it. I don't know which ones they are, which is annoying, <laughs> but I know they exist. Oh, okay. Um, we talked a fair bit about the Revil ransomware gang, probably because they attacked the Colonial Pipeline in the United States and caused more than a wee bit of bother. Um, 
apparently, as part of the whole negotiations around Ukraine, um, and as a bit of a show of good faith, the Russians decided now was a good time to arrest that ransomware gang. Oh, nice. I like to hear that. I, yeah. I always think of the, uh, the, the Cardassians, in, or wait, Cardassians? I forget which one's which. The ones in Star Trek Deep Space Nine? They're Cardassian. The Cardassians, Cardassians are quote-unquote <laughs> real people, but that's, that's a very loose description of real. So in, in Deep Space Nine, the Kardashians are always arresting people and tell, telling them they've been, uh, they're on trial for uh, whatever crime it was. And the punishment that has been already dealt out is you will be, you will be killed. Yeah, <laughs> your execution date is set for next Tuesday and your trial is Monday. Have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of that when I hear the Russians arresting somebody. Yeah, that, that, a Russian prison isn't good enough for, uh, is just perfect for the Revil ransomware gang. That is true, but it does sort of make you think of, so you mean you could have done this at any time between then and now? Because now all of a sudden when it's convenient from a uh, political point of view, you can just magic it up in seconds? Wait a minute, well, why do you think that? Well, we know that the US government asked them to as part of the whole ongoing negotiations. You guys have been negotiating with the Russians a lot the last week. Oh, okay, so they, they knew that the US knew that Russia already knew who they were. Well, no, the U.S. basically said, any chance you could arrest those guys? And they were like, sure, yeah, here you go. Hmm. So why didn't you do that six months ago? <laughs> anyway, look, like you say, you know, Russian prison, just the right place. So, yeah, great. Um, meanwhile, I am happy to report that there is a bill making... Oh, wait, no, that's later in the story. I'm not happy to report yet. Um, <laughs> Different story. Uh, so we know that there are a couple of bills making their way through Congress that are trying to force app stores to either allow sideloading and or allow third-party payments. That is continuing afoot. Basically, one of the bills got passed out of committee, moving on to the floor of the Senate. As best as I can tell, it has approximately a snowball's chance in hell of passing, but hmm. nonetheless, it's moving forward. Details in short This notes. was the, the only nonpartisan topic in the in the uh, United States, oh, House. it is. It has votes from both parties, but it doesn't appear to have enough. Okay, Apple doesn't like it, right? Shockingly, oh, very, <laughs> very much. Apple doesn't like it. Neither does Google, but Apple is particularly string, particularly vocal about not liking it. So, moving into our first deep dive, um, there is a fire extinguisher icon. So that's the first thing. It is also the case that there is a bug in Safari 15. It does leak a small amount of information, but it's not a catastrophe by any stretch of the imagination. And I would definitely say it as being overhyped, particularly in headlines. And I've, it's this kind of story reminds me that the journalist writes the piece and an editor writes the headline. Mm. <laughs> and there's not often as tight a correlation between the two as there probably should be. Um, anyway, uh, there is a company called Fingerprint.js who are on that sort of edge of, are they the good guys or are they the bad guys? They sell browser fingerprinting as a service, which is an attempt to break into people's privacy, but they're doing it from the point of view of trying to prevent fraud. So they're they're doing something I don't agree with for a reason I do agree with. And they're constantly trying to find ways around Apple's privacy protections, and yet they're telling us about their security vulnerability. So they're grey. Grey. <laughs> okay. Anyway, fingerprint JS of the people. Um, 
they discovered a small leak in Safari where it gives away a little bit of information about the other stuff you do. So that's the TLDR takeaway, but let's actually dig a little bit deeper into what's actually happening. So we have talked a lot together about cookies, right? They're a little piece of information that a web server gives a browser and says, the next time you see me, give that back to me. And it's just a piece of text. It is literally just a piece of text. Right. So you can't store a lot in a cookie. But there is a modern design philosophy for the web that is very strongly pushed by Google, which is the concept of something called a progressive web app, which are web apps that you can have linked to the homepage of the smartphone that will actually function while you're offline. So they cache a whole bunch of data in the browser, not just like a token like a cookie is. They cache lots of information. So you can use Google Docs on a Chromebook while you're offline because it's using one of these progressive web apps. And so it's using one of the local storage APIs. And so there's a thing called indexed DB, which allows JavaScript to store literally a database of information in the browser so that you can continue to use the app hmm. when you're offline. So okay. it's an actual database where you can do SQL queries and the whole kit and caboodle. This is and JavaScript, nothing, nothing Google or Apple specific. Correct. It is one of the accepted APIs. I think it's officially part of HTML5. It's, it's, it's okay. one of those officially sanctioned APIs. Um, and the link is in the show notes to the Mozilla description of what it is and what it does. So cookies, JavaScript in general, IndexedDB, all of these things are protected by something called the browser's same origin policy. So if you put some JavaScript on Podfeet, that JavaScript can interact with cookies from Podfeet. It can interact with IndexedDB databases from Podfeet. It can interact with anything from Podfeet. But your JavaScript on podfeet.com cannot interact with anything from google.com or facebook.com or whatever else. Right. Okay, so it it can go fetch data from other places. It can go make but can't very interact basic with what's over there. It can make basic HTTP requests, mm -hmm. but it can't read the cookies. It can't okay. read the local cache data. Got right. Yeah, yeah. So it can get the time zone data, for example, but it can't do anything else yeah. while it's there. Okay. Correct. Correct. And. There is a bug, a very small bug, in how Safari 15 implements the same origin policy for IndexedDB databases. It doesn't leak the database, but when you ask it for a list of every database that exists, it shows you every database that exists, not just the ones you have access to. Hmm. And the second piece of information is that the databases are named for the URL that created them. So okay. podfeet.com can get a list of every database that exists. So every app that uses IndexedDB, every website that uses IndexedDB that the visitor to Podfeet has visited will have a database in the list. So Podfeet could determine that you were a user of Facebook. Um, boy, that took a turn in a weird way that I didn't understand. So, so podfeet.com in... <laughs> the browser can ask for the database of where you just came from? No, or it can ask the browser, what databases do you have? And the browser is only supposed to answer with the list of names that belong to you. 
Okay, but it's asking answering with all the names. So that's a Safari bug then? Yes. Oh. Safari 15 specifically. Huh. And okay. so Safari 15 it doesn't let podfeet.com into anyone else's database, but it does let podfeet.com know the other databases exist. And the database naming scheme includes the URL. So if you can get a list of names, you can get a list of URLs. Therefore, you can determine if the you if the browser you're currently in is also a user on other websites that use IndexedDB. So it's not every other website you visit. It's only other websites that use this API. Okay, which narrows it down? Which narrows it down to your major web apps, basically. Oh, okay. Okay. To to so it wouldn't necessarily do Facebook.com. Oh, no, almost certainly it does because IndexedDB is a way of getting around cookies. So in theory, it's for storing large amounts of data for making cool user features, but Facebook use it as a way to sneak around people clearing their cookies because they know to clear their cookies. They don't know to clear local data, as you'll find it called. Okay. So they're using it for nefarious purposes, but that doesn't matter because the database is created. So if they just use Safari in their ad uh, calculations, they'd be able to find out where you've been. Briefly, yes. (laughs) Yeah, until this bug is fixed, yes. They will catch, okay. but only to other sites that have IndexedDB, right? So they will net, you don't use this API on PodFeed because you're not actually running a progressive web app. So right. you would never show up in anyone's list ever because okay. no database would be made for PodFeed. So it's okay. only YouTube and the big apps that are actually using these APIs. So from now, a user perspective, is, that, is it leaking any data about you? It is leaking the fact that you have an account with these other sites. Sorry, it is leaking the fact that you use these other sites. Okay. And there is a teeny tiny possible extra leak. Some websites embed information in the URL, and anything embedded in the URL is in these database names. Okay. Now, that's sure. n- that's n- that's not going to be secrets, right? Because that is a catastrophic mistake in programming to embed a secret into a URL. That is, That is like... I'm an amazing security vulnerability that doesn't exist on these major sites. But it might contain your user ID. So you might be able to say not just that you're a YouTube user, but also that you're a YouTube user podfeet. Okay. Okay. So it is definitely a leak of some information about you. And given that Apple's whole point is that it should be hard to track Safari users. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a pretty embarrassing whoopsie. Egg on, egg on the face for sure. It is absolutely egg on the face, but it's not, oh my God, I have to change all my passwords. It's not one of, it's not a four alarm fire. It's an egg on the face for Apple. And, and a small amount it. of, yeah. Um, have they, I'm trying to remember which story is which, uh, Apple is working on a fix. Yes, they are. Okay. So they have all acknowledged right. so the, the problem. This and deserves a, a fire extinguisher because it's not that bad of a leak. It is embarrassing. They're fixing it. It's Oops. just, it's not a, and there's nothing you can do because you don't have to change your passwords. None of your secret information has gone away. Some advertisers can know that you also use some other sites and there's nothing you can do about it. So why would you set your hair on fire? There's literally, there's just nothing. There's very right. little there, there. Right, right. So deep dive number two then is, I really didn't know what to call this. I was tempted to go with the word kerfuffle because that has such a loose meaning. I can make that mean anything. <laughs> But there's a bunch of stuff that happened around iCloud Private Relay. And I guess the thing we should all remember is that Apple say in giant big writing, it's a beta. So 
teething problems with a beta shouldn't really be a shock. That's, you know, dog bites man, not man bites dog. Right? That's not earth shattering. <laughs> but a bunch of things happened in an order that made it look like there was a conspiracy that there probably isn't. Before we go, say again what iCloud Private Relay is, because I'm never entirely sure. iCloud Private Relay is a privacy-enhancing feature that allows you to hide your actual websites you're visiting from your everyone basically between you and Apple servers, so your ISP, every, the coffee shop, your ISP, your carrier, everyone so between not the you thing and in, the internet. It's not the thing you do in email. It's a thing you it, it do does that at the too. system level? It does that Yes, yes. Okay. Th- those are not in, mutually in email, exclusive. You can, there's a thing that you, if you turn it on, it, it erases all of the images and all of your emails, and you have to constantly hit load the content anyway so that you can see what the email was about. That's different than iCloud Private Relay, I think. There, okay, there are connected features because one of the things iCloud Private Relay will do is give you privacy when loading remote images. It won't block them. It'll load them in a way that doesn't give away your privacy. Okay, it, it sort of blocks them if you turn it on inside uh, mail. They, they don't show up, so you get a big empty block and you have to constantly hit a button that says, uh, no, show me the messages. So I've, t- I've turned it off because it irritates me so much. That's how annoying it is. I'm not sure that's the same feature. Anyway. Protect mail activity, that's called. Hide IP address is probably the, the yes. iCloud private Hi- relay. Okay. Correct. Yes. All right. So the other thing Apple are working on through the beta is how to describe this functionality because it's actually not straightforward. <laughs> but your web traffic doesn't go straight from you to the website you're visiting. It goes through a two-hop system where the first hop knows who you are, but not what you're looking at. And the second hop knows what you're looking at, but not who you are. Right. So no one in the chain knows what you're browsing apart from you. Okay. All right. Now I remember which one's iCloud Private Relay. Yes, they need to work on their messaging. <laughs> they re- Yeah, and it's one thing they're changing very actively throughout this beta process, actually. They've reworded it quite a few times, which is probably for the better in the long run, but not helping any of us right now this second using the beta. <laughs> because it just keeps changing under our noses. But hey, it's beta. That's what it means. By the so, way, it doesn't say it's beta when you're when you look at those screens. It certainly does when you turn it on. It definitely does no, when you I, turn it on. I just and clicked it. I just brought it up in mail and I clicked it and there's nothing about it being a beta. Maybe the, I, the actual iCloud setting definitely, definitely says it's beta. So I, I think there are there are iOS fifteen features okay. and there is the actual stuff that's officially called iCloud relay that is in iCloud. That's only available to iCloud plus people. Okay. Hmm. Okay. It it definitely definitely says this beta. Um. Anyway. Anyway. What definitely happened and was the first thing to start off all the kerfuffling was that the European, not the European, many European carriers got together and wrote an open letter to the European Commission saying, "Please ban iCloud Relay because of digital sovereignty, and because it hides metadata that's very important to us." which they used words that look like they have a technical meaning. They do not have a technical meaning when put together in that order. They are for the purpose of bamboozling politicians. Okay. So it is my honest opinion that this is technobabble designed to intimidate but not actually communicate. And basically what they're actually saying is, but we like spying on people because we can sell their data and get money off them twice, once when they pay us and once when we sell them. And we'd like to keep doing that. Wah. (laughs) 
That's my translation. <laughs> if I if I was a uh, on the European Commission, I would say, hmm, it's coming from the from the carriers. What's the t- mm. what are the chances that this is for the betterment of mankind versus the the betterment of lining their pockets with silver? Which one is it? I don't know. Yeah. Can't, can't quite tell. <laughs> I and I think I think the European Commission are smart enough to do exactly as you just described there. So I'm not sure this is going anywhere. But nonetheless, it made a bit of a splash when you have like you know the big ones like Vodafone and Telefonica and the, the big European carriers all writing this letter together, throwing the rat out of the pram. And then just to cement this as being a thing, a day later-ish, a bunch of stuff started to surface on American news sites that Private Relay wasn't working on T-Mobile. Right. We talked about that here. Yeah, and that was all sort of just breaking as we were recording last, I think. And so the assumption was that T-Mobile, that in Europe they were just saying no, and in did we talk about it here or did we talk about it on Let's Talk Apple together? You and I have talked about it, but I don't think it was here. Uh, okay, that might be it. I'm getting confused as to where I talk to you now, because we talk, <laughs> we talk so often, I'm not sure what venue. Um, but it would appear that it's not... A, so initially it looked as if the American carriers had just turned it off. So the European carriers asked kindly, could we please turn it off? And the appearance was that the American carriers had just gone ahead and done it. And that was the initial reporting. But it's not that simple. It's it's really not that simple. There is much, much confusion. So I am not going to say exactly what's happening, but I can tell you there is some or all of the following three things are happening. So mix and match <laughs> the three ingredients in some amount. Okay. Right. There, it is definitely true that some carriers are intentionally disabling the feature for some customers, but not for nefarious reasons, for genuine reasons. Those customers have chosen to enable parental controls from those carriers. So you cannot hide your browser activity from the carrier and simultaneously ask the carrier to filter your browser activity. Okay, okay, that right? makes That's sense. impossible. So, yeah, I'm not even slightly surprised that, that they would block it for people who have proactively opted in to the filtering. You know, you can't have two filters, really. So anyway, that that makes sense. I'm not sure if they have... If they did that, did they do that too broadly and end up blocking it for more people? There's some, there have been some people saying, well, actually, they enable this privacy feature by default. So they're saying it's for people who've chosen to have the web traffic filtered, but actually it's for people who haven't chosen not to. And there's a bit of gray area around that too. <laughs> okay, but that is definitely in the mix. That is a legitimate thing that is in the mix. Something else that's definitely in the mix that I didn't know about before is that while there is a global iCloud private relay setting in the iCloud settings, where you basically say, I want to use iCloud private relay, there's a second setting deep, deep, deep down in the carrier settings under cellular providers. And there's actually a different one for each carrier configured on your phone. And so basically that setting can turn it off for that carrier. So hypothetically, while you're on Wi-Fi, you could have it on, but in the carrier level, it could be off, in which case it's not working while you're on cellular. I didn't even know that setting was in there, but it is. And so we now know that setting exists, but carriers can push settings to your phone as part of the whole, they get to send, I'm trying to remember the name for it, but carriers get to send configuration profiles to your phone so that your phone knows how to talk data to that network. Mm -hmm. So there's some confusion as to whether or not the setting is off because people somehow turned it off or because the carriers defaulted to off for everyone. The carrier's answer is, oh, 
don't look at us, we didn't do that, it must be a bug in iOS. So this setting might be turning itself off because of a bug in iOS, to which Apple went, uh, we haven't touched that code in the last security update, so I don't think it was us. So okay. take your pick from those ingredients. Among, the, among those ingredients is what's going on here. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to make a stronger statement than that. I do want to uh, make the point that uh, Bart was right. If you go into system preferences, uh, I think you have to click on your face and then into iCloud, there's private relay and it does say beta and it is in bold letters. So turn on private relay and uh, it's not in bold letters, but it is in letters on the uh, on the phone as well. But there's the separate hide my IP address that's inside the inside mail. I don't know if that's private relay or that's something else, but. It's just an on Yeah, what happens if you, if you turn off the private relay toggle, does that other toggle vanish from mail? Is that like basically saying no. mail opting into private relay? No, because I have right now, I figured it would be stupid to click it while I was in the middle of doing a Skype call. Um, probably, probably. <laughs> uh, I have private relay beta is off on my Mac, but I uh, do have it on on my uh, on mail. I turned it on. So it exists. And it must be something else. Yeah. So back to messaging. This is going to get as hard to explain as handoff and continuity and all that. <laughs> it really is. Because some things, some of those features are part of the core OS and not iCloud Plus. So some things everyone mm. gets and some things we get because we pay Apple for iCloud. Interesting. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. That's clear as mud. Um a little bit clearer, though, to help address your confusion, there is actually a really nice write-up on Wired explaining um, what Private Relay does. In So last time we talked about Apple releasing a white paper describing it at a nerdy technical level, which I loved, because mm-hmm. it, it showed me all the technologies involved and stuff. Well, Wired have translated that from nerd speak to human speak. So that's actually, a, I've actually have that link bookmarked. I have a, a category in pocket called For Reference. Mm-hmm. And this one went in there so that if anyone ever asks me, I can pull that link out of my pocket and hand it over. Okay. That's actually a really good idea to have a list of those. Yeah. Yeah. So basically I tag them with security and privacy and for reference. And I know that anything in pocket with those two tags is worth searching when someone asks me about something. It's sort of like text expander for what you know. <laughs> mm. It's like, I know I th- I'm probably going to need to know this in the future. Save that. Or not so, have to type it again. Just keep pressing. Or not that have to link. type it again. Yeah, just, just yes. Yeah, so exactly, yes. And the share feature out of pocket is great. So then you just blurt it straight at the person involved. Um, action alerts. Then, um, Windows people, your patch Tuesday has been and gone. Kind of an important one. It fixes what is being described universally as a wormable Windows hole. Ew. They're not good words. Mm-mm. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And Linux users, in case, you're, in case you're being smug, if you're making use of full disk encryption, you have yourself a fairly serious problem in the kernel, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Again, wormable is where uh, it can, it means it can propagate. It can propagate on its own. Right, without any assistance. Yeah, so it can, okay. so the malware gets into one computer, using the network, it can get itself into other computers. Without any action on those users. Without, yeah, exactly. So a a normal virus will propagate when a human being forwards an email or in the olden days when a human being handed over a floppy disk or a thumb drive, but Mm -hmm. a worm will do it all by itself. 
Wait, we all we all understand self-propagating viruses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so a worm, despite sounding friendlier than a virus, is actually a subset of viruses and the worst kind of virus. They should rename it to something else. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay, so worthy warnings then. Um, there is a protocol that exists, which I, I, I didn't even know this existed, but someone thought it would be a good idea to take the USB protocol and to project it over IP so that you can wrap USB in an IP connection so that you can basically do USB devices over your LAN. And the driver for that an open source driver for that feature that is used in many different routers by many different manufacturers has a catastrophic hole in it. And so if your router, 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 whatever side of the Atlantic you're on, supports NetUSB, check for a security update because you really should have one. Um, And the other question, of course, is always, is your router actually still officially supported by your vendor? Because if Mm -hmm. it isn't, it shouldn't be your router anymore because that is your device that connects you to the internet. And in case you haven't heard, the internet has some naughty people on it. <laughs> Newsflash. Yeah. I have not seen an update from uh, Eero. It doesn't mean they support the protocol, though. Yeah, that's the problem. This, If you don't know whether they support the protocol, then you don't know whether you're not getting an update because they're stupid or because they don't use the protocol. I think realistically on this kind of bug, your best effort is, I know my router is under active support Mm -hmm. and I know I'm not sitting on any undone software updates. Therefore, I have done my due diligence. Right. And I didn't didn't buy my router off the back of a truck or not recognize the brand. Well, actually, there's recognizable brands that are also terrible. I was going to say they can be recognizably awful. (laughs) They can be so bad we all know about them. Right, as I'm sitting with a two-year-old uh, Motorola phone that isn't getting software updates since a year ago, February. Grr. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Red Cross have unfortunately suffered a fairly large data breach. Um, half a million people's data leaked, um, including like volunteers and the people the volunteers were helping and stuff like that. It's if, if you do work for the Red Cross, you probably want to read in a little bit more detail to see if you're affected or not. But that's a lot of people. That's not good. Also, and the FBI have issued a warning. Now, in this specific instance, the people being actively targeted by this group of attackers is people who work in the defense industry in the United States. So there are a lot of contractors who do work for the US military, and the people who work for those contractors are currently being proactively targeted by a group of bad guys who are physically mailing... USB drives infected with the bad USB malware. Um, so if you plug said USB drive in, you are hacking yourself and giving the attackers a backdoor into the defense contractors. So on the one sense, this is an extremely specific warning. In the other sense, this is just a timely reminder. You don't stick USB things from random strangers into your computer. We know USB is not safe. We know that there are hardware-level problems that are never going to be patched in most USB firmware. You can't shove random USB things into your computer, so don't. Yeah, it's real hard when you get handed free ones at at conferences and stuff. Now, I used to run Clamex AV and scan thumb drives when I stuck them in. Now I just keep them in a little drawer and look at them and wonder how I could ever use them. 
until we realized it was actually the firmware that was broken rather than the files being traditional malware. Because when it was when it was just malware files and a virus scanner could scan them. But now that we know it's actually broken USB firmware, there's nothing can help you there. So maybe so. I should let Forbes go at them with a hammer. So I yeah. will never be tempted to open them. Yeah, it could, could be quite, depending on who, actually, you should go to conferences and get thumb drives from companies you hate so you can therapeutically smash their logo. <laughs> <laughs> An idea. Anyway, um, another timely warning. Um, so I had listened to an episode of The Checklist that I was going to pick further down in the show notes as just a good thing to listen to, uh, basically about avo- avoiding QR code phishing scams. And it's a really good episode, so it's linked here now as a related item, and I recommend listening to it. Because ultimately, the act of scanning a QR code is effectively identical to the act of clicking on a link in an email. Right? Just because a QR code is sitting on a parking meter in the city of Los Angeles doesn't mean the city of Los Angeles put the sticker there. It could be any random gumbean who put that sticker there. And instead of it taking you to a website where you can actually pay for actual parking, it could be taking you to a phishing site whose URL is weareevilscammers.com. And if you don't look up in that address bar, you'll just blindly enter in your credit card details. So So do we only have to worry about this on parking meters and I can still, with reckless abandon, scan all other QR codes, please? No. Every QR code is a link. When you arrive at your destination... Look up at the address bar okay. and make sure you have arrived at your destination. Okay, so it's still okay to scan them, but just pay attention to where it took you. Okay, because a, a Girl yeah. Scout around the corner, believe it or not, handed me her business card with a QR code on it where I can go in and uh, and order Girl Scout cookies. Oh, that's cool. Now, it says I mean, what it, is it just, should be. It's a physical, a QR code is just a physical link. Right. So treat it like a physical link. It's not magically safe. It's not magically bad either. Exactly. It's a link. And a link can go anywhere. So when you arrive, have a look around and see where you are. So if uh, people don't already know to do this, uh, go to to the web and type in QR code generator and you'll get a a number of places you can go to where you enter a, a URL or you can actually enter it in a phrase. You can do all kinds of interesting things with it and say, generate QR code. And you will see that a QR code will be generated. Then scan that with your phone and you'll see that it'll take you wherever you said to go. So it, that's how easy these things are to make. They're very cool. They are. And there's also, the there's a protocol, not a, there's a spec for encoding Wi-Fi details in QR codes. So if you have a guest network, you can actually have a QR code on the fridge that your guests can scan. Back in the days when we had guests in the house. I did um, that a long time ago, and then Apple made it so easy that when people come into the house and ask for, you know, they flip it open and try to get on your network, you tap a button and say, let them in. And that was that. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, that happened just before the pandemic. And I remember all of the family got together to visit my brother in his new house, and most of us are iPhone users. And, you know, my brother is an Android user, so he told me the password and I typed it in. And from that point on, my phone was just offering it to everyone because they'd turn on their phone and the Bluetooth would go, yeah, Bart wants to share a password with you and go, yeah, I'll take that. And everyone was just online. It was the easiest thing ever. Yeah. It, the funny thing is you can't stop someone from sharing your password with someone else. Like, right. You come because to your house, I share it with you, and then you end up sharing it to someone else. But they don't know what the password is. 
if you dig deep enough, it's in your keychain. It has to be. It hmm. takes some serious nerding to get it out, but your computer knows it because otherwise your computer isn't on that network. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Now, this is why corporations don't use passwords for the Wi-Fi. This is why corporations use 802.1x because there is no password to share. But that's a whole different kettle of fish. That's why enterprise Wi-Fi does not use usernames and passwords, or does not use passwords. I've been out of enterprise for eight years. I'd never heard of what you said, but let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It does, it's an utter, utter side note. Anyway, QR codes, they're physical links. Treat them as such. Uh, there was also a whole bunch of the internet exploding going, Teslas can be hacked. It's like, no, you, the word Tesla should be in that headline-ish kind of, and the word hack <laughs> sort of kind of is. But actually what happened is there's an open source thing called Tesla Mate that had a security bug that's been patched. And you, if you're using Tesla Mate, you really should patch. So if you are, do. And as I understand, the testimate is fairly nerdy and you run it on like a Raspberry Pi or, or something like that or onto your, on your QNAP NAS or whatever. Yeah, so, so Bart, Bart and a couple of other NoSilla Castaways and I are in a little Telegram group where we talk about things like this. And um, I learned about this from, uh, I think, I can't remember which one of us DTMS, it was. possibly. No, 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 no. This this was in our little group. But anyway, oh, okay. uh, Tesselmate is very cool. It's a plugin. So I'm running it on my um, uh, Synology NAS, and it allows you to download data from Tesla's website about your car and what it's doing. It is nerdy enough that I never got it to work. And when I did a system <laughs> upgrade to my NAS yesterday, I just said, yeah, you know what? I never got that thing working. It looks like it's causing a little bit of trouble, needs a patch. Okay, you can be gone now. That is definitely the easiest thing to do with these things, yeah. Oh, and, you're and security did, vulnerable. Go away. And this vulner so this vulnerability did not cause Teslas to crash. They couldn't make you accelerate. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't turn the steering wheel. I think they could do things like turn your lights on and off and a couple other things. It wasn't catastrophic. Yeah, because basically what TeslaMate does is it logs into the Tesla API as you because mm -hmm. you have to give it permission to. And so basically anything you can do in the Tesla app, you can do in TeslaMate. And so the Tesla app will let you honk the horn and flash the lights and vent the windows and you know, all of those useful things the Tesla app can let you do. Well, that Tesla app is powered by an API, and that same API is what Tesla Mate uses. Right, right. So, so yeah, so a rough ballpark get hacked, is, But do remember yeah. that if you have a Tesla, it's a computer, and you're, you're playing right. with it, you're playing with it. <laughs> it yeah. didn't occur to me that that would be the case, though. That was interesting. Okay, uh, da, 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 that was the Tesla one. So, notable news. We oh. were all a little bit curious when Apple said, yeah, 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 you can stick an iOS 14 for an undetermined amount of time. We were all curious what an undetermined amount of time would prove to be. The answer is about, what, four months? A third of a year? <laughs> Since it, it would have come out in the fall, as Apple liked to call it. So, I don't think it's been more than four months. It certainly hasn't been half a year. Anyway. The answer is, thou shalt now upgrade to iOS 15 if thou wants security updates. Yeah. So, that, time's up. That was, that was an odd aberration. I, I understand they do I, that with the Mac OS, but, you know, everybody in iOS was used to it. You had to. I'm not sure why they, they let you have that off. I mean, had they done that I, before iOS 13, which was a, a dumpster fire, that would have been great. But. I, I, I honestly, I think the answer is for mobile device management. I, I think this is one of the things, this is basically to give corporate customers time to adapt. Give them an inch, they'll take a mile though, man. You give them four months, next oh, time they boy. want six months, then they want a year, then they want five years. 
I worked right, in that environment. Right, but it's more difficult to justify saying, no, you can't have any lead time. Whereas at least if you say, but you've had four months, you're not, you don't look like a complete idiot. So I give him nothing. You give him nothing. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, that's what I think is behind it. Anyway, time's up. Time to update. And go. probably not a coincidence that Apple have retroactively added more detail into the iOS 15 release notes to detail more of the security updates that iOS oh. 15 actually had all along. Oh, okay. Because now it's like, hey, you know what? These words are out there telling people what to look for in iOS 14. Don't don't uh, delay. Yeah. And it's also part of responsible disclosure, right? You don't you don't release details about updates where people haven't had a chance to patch. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Hey, I want to sneak in a whole story that you don't have Ooh. here that for some reason, I don't know why this didn't come up or if it did come up, I completely missed it. Have uh, mm-hmm. There's a company called Kronos that sells uh, enterprise software for they do a lot of stuff, but one of the things they do is time cards and time card management of planning software and things for corporations. And okay. um, they're a huge corporation, international corporation, and they got they got uh, ransomware. And oh. this the story never came up here, but I have a little bit of inside scoop on uh, some of the things that happened as a result. One of the things that happened with the because of the ransomware was it locked out Kronos's customers from being able to log in and and put in their uh, their time. So suddenly you've got a whole bunch of corporations where people can't log that they worked, and if they can't mm-hmm. log that they worked, they don't get paid. So the first That's thing that was good. interesting from my source is that the CEOs and CTOs of all of these big corporations, their first reaction was to contact Kronos and say, how can we help? Not That's very positive. What is wrong with you? How could you be so sloppy? How could you let this happen? The reaction was, how can we help? What do we need to do together to get to the bottom of this and help you figure it out and, and do what we need to do? And working together, what these, what these corporations decided to do, most of them just paid whatever you worked last week, we're just going to pay you, whether you worked or not. But there was one company in particular that was working on something very, very important, and it would be very bad if there were any delays in the shipment of this particular thing. So the company decided to pay every employee double what they had made the week before. Huh. And I thought that was a really interesting reaction. I mean, first of all, you can't hire anybody to save your soul right now, right? There's not enough people because all of the women are still at home. Uh, And so uh, you can't afford to lose anybody. And the particular thing they were making is so important that you couldn't afford for anybody not to show up and be annoyed in any way, shape, or form. And it was happening over Christmas. So you needed all these people working double secret overtime and everything and not to be annoyed in any way. So I just thought that was really interesting because while they were working out how to fix it and, you know, doing all the big things you got to do when you hit ransomware, the CTOs and the CEOs were just not accusatory. They were helpful and the relationships actually got stronger. So it was was a real interesting kind of success story of something awful. That is, that is very nice. Cool. Um, Oh, I don't know how to transition into this one. This is not so nice. So, th- <laughs> okay. Thanks to some good journalism and the use of the Freedom of Information Act, we now know that the UK government paid a very major advertising agency over half a million pounds to design an ad campaign to turn the public against end-to-end encryption. Um, UK government the- did that? Yeah. Because in their, they actually say it in the brief to the advertising agency, the public are uninformed and therefore vulnerable. And they instructed the advertising company to make sure that their ad campaign 
didn't trigger any sort of informed debate on the trade-offs involved. So basically, we're paying you for propaganda. We want you to hinder public understanding and push our message. That's not just misinformation. That's disinformation. Wow. Thankfully, people are quite cranky about it. So now there's lots and lots of public discussion about this in exactly all of the ways that the government don't want. So neener, neener. I wonder whether normal people who saw the ads, though. Well, but it hasn't. This is a great thing. So the ad campaign hasn't launched yet. Oh, it hasn't. Oh, the news has oh. broken in advance. Oh, goody, goody, goody. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I thought yeah, this exactly. was after the fact. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so the whole thing's a big dud now, right? It's fizzled nice. in advance. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, that Rolling That is a Stone. success story. That's a good one. It is, that's true. Uh, and just one of many, many examples of the kind of debate this has sparked. A great article over on Intego. 10 ways end-to-end encryption protects your data, your privacy, and your bank balance. <laughs> Another one of those nice ones to have in your pocket. Um, so after years of problems, so Brian Krebs has reported for years on all of the terrible ways in which the IRS's website was basically facilitating horrible fraud against US taxpayers. And giving all sorts of advice, like, file early before someone else does, because the systems in place to protect you are awful. Like, the amount of time Brian Krebs has sounded alarm bells about filing US taxes, it was horrific. So, there's now a story, which is probably a good news story, that the IRS are really tightening up on the authentication needed to get onto their self-filing portal. For some reason, it's coming in next summer, just after you've all filed your taxes in April. This summer. Yeah. This summer, this coming summer. Yeah, so it won't protect your taxes for the year you're about to file, but I guess a year from now it'll protect you. Um, anyway, they're they're outsourcing the identification part to a verification company who are already employed by, I believe it was 27 states to do this job. They're called ID.me, and they sell basically verified identity as a service. So they will literally make you you know, send in a scan of your of your passport and do like a, a 3D, do like a video selfie, which they will then use machine intelligence to verify it, that you match your passport photo. And if it can't, you get put through to a human who will do a video interview to, where you have to basically prove you are who your passport says you are. So it's pretty strong authentication, very hard for identity thieves to get by that kind of thing. So it will certainly make your tax returns a heck of a lot safer and make it a lot less likely someone else is going to get your tax refund instead of you. But it's a private company and you're being forced to hand over, you know, video selfies and stuff. Now, their privacy policies actually read very well. But, you know, it's a bit of a gray area. I also learned by reading up on this company that they were awarded contracts that were taken away from Equifax when Equifax lost all that data. That that yeah. made me delightfully happy. I had no idea that Equifax actually lost money because they lost all our records. That was delightful. I'm still concerned. I mean, I, I think about um, you know, my father in law is is pretty good at the computer and does does the things he needs to do. He stays secure, cares deeply about security. But I'm just trying to picture him trying to take a selfie with his. Uh, you know, he's got a Logitech webcam. I gave him and. I just can't picture him pulling that off. Um, I just picture this but taking he f- 14 hours to do with video call. Um, but does he file his own taxes online himself rather than an accountant or doing it in paper? That's a good question. He may do it in paper. Um, but I mean, I think about people with uh, poor internet access or, you know, crappy phones or 
people of color, uh, you know, things get harder. I know that it, 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 they're the ones who will probably end up having to get flipped over to a video interview instead of just being able to take a selfie. I mean, Steve watched a woman just try to get her temperature taken at the doctor and she was black and it didn't ever register on her. It just refused her skin. And I don't know whether that was an aberration, but I know that you can't, uh, black people can't, tr- often can't trigger the uh, faucets to come on that have those little IR sensors. And there's just always something like that that's going to make this be harder for certain groups of people. I think it's a wait and see one, because on the one hand, if they've successfully rolled this out in 27 states without, there doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to have been a giant catastrophe in those 27 states. So it can't be utterly awful, or we'd but, know about it. So rolled out in 27 states for what service? This government service is basically anything to interact with the state government instead of the federal government. Okay, but interacting with the federal, go- the state government, um, I, I don't often inter- interact with my state government at all. So I don't, I don't see that that would necessarily be, mean that there's widespread usage within all populations. Look, I don't work for the company. Yeah. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, there it I, is. It's it still gives me pause. It see, this is the kind of thing where I, I think it's a cultural problem because in in many other parts of the world, the answer would be that the government would do it. So in Ireland, we have our government ID, so gov you know gov ID, and all of our state services are done through two factor authentication with our government ID. There is you know they solved the problem once. And it's now centralized for the entire state services. But the thing is, that wouldn't float in America. The federal government having identity on everyone to interact with anything to do with, with any state or any department, it would never float. So if you can't do it centrally, then you have to do it in the private sector. But if you do it in the private sector, then you have all the problems about the private sector. And you just go around in circles going, I don't know what the answer is. Help. Yeah. The ACLU is concerned. I think concern is a good, I mean, you know, I am concerned, prove me wrong, it would be my stance. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's one to watch, definitely one to watch. It also might be one to do early rather than waiting till this summer. That is, that <laughs> that is was kind of a fair advice. point. I, I would certainly not do it on the, what is it, the 1st of April is your filing date, so the 29th of March would seem to be a bad time. Yeah, well, you don't need it for this year, so... No, but I mean next year, right? Next year. Oh, yeah. yeah. Don't wait till then. One of the things I really liked about what Brian Krebs did was uh, he ended up in a queue of two or three hours to uh, to get through. And I forget if he said he tweeted something about the fact that he was waiting or something like that. And he was suddenly connected because he was Brian Krebs. And he and I liked his reaction. It was like, no, 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 no. I want to know what it's like for real people. And then they said, no, 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 we're still going to let you through. So I like that it annoyed him that he got front row treatment because he really wanted to be able to describe what is it like for everybody else. Yeah, and he called it out in the article. So their attempt to get a better write-up by sneaking him up the queue backfired. In my former position in my former company, I refused to be on the, um, I could be on the, you're a really important list and get faster service from IT. I said, nope, no, no. I want to be where the engineers are. I want to be where, where you know, uh, Sally IC designer is getting the response of, no, you have to wait two days to get your computer fixed. I wanted to know what it was really like. So I really appreciated his approach. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
In other news, a US court has made a very interesting decision that if it ends up setting precedent could be quite important. So Merck are a very large drug company you may have heard of, and they were hit by the not pet your ransomware, and they had insurance. And their insurance company decided to declare NotPetya an act of cyber warfare and therefore say that the anti-war clause in their insurance meant they didn't have to pay up neener, neener, neener. And the court went, heck no, that was not a war. That is a whole different thing. Pay them. Wow. So that's a big deal. Your cyber insurance actually does mean something because if this court case had gone the other way, cyber insurance would be worthless. Because anyone can just declare, oh, that's cyber war and just not pay. Yeah, wow. Uh, Also an important court case, again, if it ends up setting precedent, and this one might, uh, an Austrian court has found that Google Analytics is incompatible with GDPR. Hmm? Now, the blog post links to an article by a company that sells a similar analytics service, so they go so far as to say, Google Analytics illegal in Europe. That's probably overstating it a little bit. But... It is the case that the Austrian court has found that this doesn't comply with the GDPR, so hypothetically, enforcement could begin against users of Google Analytics, but I don't think that's likely because there's at least three other court cases pending in other countries, including two in the Netherlands. So realistically, what's going to happen is the other court cases are going to come out, and if they all agree with each other, then we have a thing. But if, you know, one of them says it's illegal and two of them say it isn't, then I don't think we have a thing so much as a big argument. So you're talking about other court cases within of in countries within the EU? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Huh. So two, two cases in the Netherlands that people are watching. So I would say, yes, this is a big deal. This is not the end of the story. Stay tuned. Yeah, if the that's The solution true, is quite simple. Wow. The solution is really very simple. So Microsoft have for years allowed customers to choose where their data is stored. Does it stay within the EU or does it leave? And Google point blank refused to. Oh, so the data collection isn't breaching the GDPR. It's the fact that you can't choose where the data lives. Right. So it means the the data ends up under the jurisdiction of the US government. And so the answer is allow, like, I mean, AWS, Microsoft, pretty much every other cloud service lets you geographically constrain your cloud. Right. This cloud shall float within Europe only. <laughs> this cloud can't. So, you know, magic force fields for the cloud. But anyway, um, you know, you get what I mean. Whereas Google just said, no, we have a global cloud. Your data is in the cloud. Mm. And that's that's been biting them on the backside in all sorts of subtle ways for years. And maybe this will finally knock some sense into them. We shall see. I just, uh, Mozilla have had a great idea. They've gotten together with a bunch of journalists and they're running a study to measure the use of the Facebook pixel, because it's used to track people who don't have Facebook accounts. So it's these dark accounts they're called. So it will be very interesting to see what they find. So Facebook are basically studying how, sorry, Mozilla are studying how Facebook are spying on people. So I, I just think that's great. So I want to see the results. Yeah, yeah, because that they're tracking BART. They are. Even though I don't have an account, they're still tracking me, which is mm-hmm. make, very cranky making. Um, and in a related story, Proton Mail now block tracking pixels that and hide your IP address. That's, I mean, Proton Mail. That's their selling point. We are a privacy-focused email service, so this isn't surprising. But anyway, it's related news. Um, also, 
a now this again is a lower court ruling so this is setting a precedent that may or may not stick but a german court has ruled that ad blocking is not copyright infringement because der bild which is a major german newspaper tried to argue that blocking ads is a breach of their copyright because you're editing the web page and the court was like don't be nuts you literally couldn't do accessibility features for the blind with that approach <laughs> So it is a very good ruling from the lower court. It is, of course, being appealed. So we shall see where it goes. But it's a good first ruling. Meanwhile, this is the story I thought we'd gotten to earlier. So I want to give an award for the best backronym of the week, right? So the concept of a backronym is you start off with the acronym you want, and then you find some words to fit. <laughs> okay. So there is a bill that I'm hoping is actually going to pass in Congress in the United States that sets a bunch of rules for terms of service to force them to be clearer and to basically provide like a little, a little sort of a diagram of how the bits all hang together and stuff. So basically to make the terms of service actually human friendly. And they've called it the TLDR bill, <laughs> which they have managed to backronym to terms of service, labeling, design and readability. <laughs> which That's great. TLDR. I like it. Um, and the final bit of news I think is worthwhile. Patrick Wardle is a very significant researcher in the Mac security space and his company, Objective-C, have a bunch of cool free tools which have been linked in our Slack, which is great. Uh, but anyway, Objective-C is converting from Patrick Wardle's private company to a non-profit run by Patrick oh, Wardle. wow. So huh. I think that's just great. Um, I, I love his work. He's he's a wonderful asset to the Mac community. So to see this go non-profit makes me very happy. Uh, and then I just want to call out some uh, reading for people who would like some more reading. So excellent explainers. There is a great breakdown of Apple's new legacy contacts feature. Like what does it actually give your legacy contacts access to? So the guys at iMore did a great job writing that up. So that link is in the show notes. Um, I This is like a half a palate cleanser and an excellent explainer. There is a really good NPR podcast called Shortwave. It's a daily science podcast that's no more than 15 minutes. It's just a little dose of science every weekday. I, I love it. It's one of my daily listens. They had an episode explaining why it is that so many companies are doing all sorts of horrible data sharing on free uh, period tracking apps for women. Huh. And they explain the economics of it, which is basically, when we detect that you are pregnant, we know you are going to spend money. Goodness me, can we target you with that? Oh, geez. And who spends more money than people who just had a baby? Exactly. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So a lot of those free ads for tracking your cycle are connected to the Facebook API. Free apps? Yeah. So iOS, Android apps okay. for cycle tracking. They're connected to the Facebook API. So the reason they're free is because they're selling your data. Oh, jeez. So they explain why it's so valuable and why you need to be careful about the apps you use because really it's not free. There's a giant big asterisk. Next to it. It's a very good episode though and no longer than 15 minutes, which is always nice. Um, and another thing I just think is worth calling out, um, there's a website who have started to, key, to build and maintain a list of verified victims of the Pegasus spyware. Hmm. And they break it down per country. And the countries are listed alphabetically so you can scroll to your country and see what's been going on in your country. Now, a lot of it is in, you know, Hungary and, the, and places like that where you have totalitarian governments. 
but nonetheless, it's informative. And the fact that they're keeping it up to date actually makes it, it's one I've linked, I've basically bookmarked for myself to keep an eye on. On to interesting insights then. Um, there We have talked about it a few times already, so I didn't want to go into it again in detail again. This whole AirTag thing, right? This is definitely starting to feel a bit like the the panics we've had over the years about like uh, if you play Magic the Gathering, you're, go, you know, you're going to become a Satanist and all this kind of nonsense. If you want some informed reading on the whole AirTags thing, two articles crossed my radar. Um, the first is at Mac Stories, and it asked a very, I think, very pertinent question. Are AirTags causing stalking or making us more aware of the stalking that's been happening all along? Ah, right. And uh, the other one then is from Tidbits. Um, oh, what's this? I, sugar, I just blanked on the guy's name who we love. Glenn Fleischman. Glenn okay. Fleischman's excellent article. Um Hidden stalking menace or latest overblown urban myth is the question Glenn asks. And as always, it's a very detailed article, very well well written, etc. So they're two good pieces of reading to have an informed thought about what you feel about AirTags. Um, and then we've talked a few times about the blockchain, and I think it was John Gruber linked to this post by um, blogger Molly White basically pointing out that the blockchain is actually really terrible at both of the things blockchain advocates say it's really good for. Um, hmm. So, again, I'm not going to spoil it. It's it's just a well-written, thoughtful post if you're curious about these things. If, if you've already made up your mind that blockchain is the life of the universe and everything, this won't change your mind. But if you're curious, <laughs> this will help. And then you have our one and only palate cleanser for the week. So I will hand over to you. So everybody knows that I'm a big fan of TikTok. And one of the amazing things about TikTok is that I learn a lot because of the people I've chosen to follow. And one of them is a physicist. He's this real long-haired guy. He looks like he'd be a surfer or something like that. And he, um, it, it, one of the things that happens a lot on TikTok is people play two different characters at the same time. So it's the same person talking to themselves, but they play two different characters. And this guy who goes by uh, Event Horizon... Um, not quite sure how he wants us to say that. Eventh Horizon? Anyway, he does these videos where he talks to himself and, and one of him is asking questions about physics and the other one is answering the questions about physics. This particular one that I've included is, is a very simple short one where it's simply him explaining how gravity is the weakest of the forces and his examples and the way he shows it is just, it's delightful. I really, really yes. like this guy and it's a, he's a great example of one of the things that I, uh, people I like to learn from on TikTok. TikTok. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed watching it. And I'm not even a TikTok user, but yeah, it's... Oh yeah, you, you don't have to be a TikTok it. user to watch these. You just click the link and, and you can watch. Yeah, yeah. Like, gravity is different to all the other forces because it is stupendously weak. Stupendously. Which I didn't think I really appreciated. Like, so many orders of magnitude, it's not... It, it's, it makes you kind of go, huh... Yeah, anyway, it's a great video. I love it to bits. Um, when, I asked, so. when I asked Bart, could I include it? He said, you had me at physics. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of true, to be honest. Yeah, but it's not just physics, it's good physics. So, yeah. Okay, well, that's all I got. Uh, so, unless you have anything else to throw in, any last minute additions? Nope, I think I'm good. Okay, well, in that case, folks, you all know what to do. Stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me at allison at podfeed.com anytime you like? If you have a question or a suggestion, just send it on over. You can also follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. 
Better yet, join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon, or you can use a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.